We're on the eve of summer, and Northeast Ohio remains hot with big news. Here to discuss it are the reporters and editors who bring you that news, the team at Cleveland.com. It's this week in the CLE. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn. We begin today with columnist Mark Namick, politics editor Jane Cahoon, and reporters Eric Heisig and Mary Kilpatrick. Any big Memorial Day plans? Dead silence. Okay, (laughs) going to work all weekend. We've had an incredible run of hosting big events in Cleveland with the RNC in 2016, the baseball all-star game in a little over a month, and the NBA all-star game in a few years. This week we learned we will host the 2021 NFL Draft, uh, which went on the road five years ago after a long time in New York. It's become a huge event where a whole lot of people get together to watch somebody come out every 10 minutes and announce a name. Mark, there's a press conference later today, but what do we know so far? Look, this is a big check on the bucket list of the Cleveland Sports Commission. Um, They want everything, and I'm not kidding, like the Super Bowl, everything. They've been after this for a while because of the fan base, the Canton Hall of Fame. Um, And we saw this just a few months ago when uh, the Sports Commission was leading an effort in the legislature to pass House Bill 531, which have in short, would have freed up a little more money for these events because there's a lot of upfront costs that go into producing these. We were arguing that we were unsuccessful. Um, you know, without this, we can't compete. That bill did pass. Uh, I don't know yet exactly how much money might actually now flow this way, but this is part of a you know a, a big vision that the sports commission here wants. I think it ends with the Super Bowl someday. You know, this thing, I guess they first went to Chicago, but where it really caught my attention was when it was in Philly, because I'm from over that way, and you Mm -hmm. worked over there. And the aerial shot showed the throngs of people that, as far as the eye could see, to follow the NFL draft. So, Mary, you're going to be covering this from the news side from here on out. What kind of numbers can we expect to see? So if Nashville this year is any indication, Cleveland should expect an economic boom. Nashville uh, this year during the NFL draft saw $132 million in direct spending. The economic impact of the three-day draft event was $224 million. This event has only been growing. If you look at Dallas, the draft there, they saw $125 million. So Nashville saw a huge increase year over year from Dallas. Uh, Philadelphia saw $94 million. So this thing, the economic impact, the, the implications for the city, it's only growing. This also will put Cleveland on a national stage. The draft was broadcast in 115 countries this year. I think something like 48 million people tuned in to watch. What happens, though, if you get bad weather? I mean, it's, it's, it's in spring, right? If it had been this spring, the odds were it would have rained. It'll be the first draft where it snows. That's <laughs> Cleveland. That's you know, our luck. You know, I don't know. I think people are crazy enough about this thing to stand in the streets. I mean, in, in the rain or in the snow. Well, we should make fun of them because if you're a true uh, football fan, right, you are you're, you can take your shirt off in sub-zero degree weather and watch a Browns I beg your game. pardon. We, we, we proved that in Cleveland with the 0-16 parade when it was, what, four degrees and everybody showed up. Um, we competed for this uh, a year or two ago, but it was a deal where it would have been split between Cleveland and Canton, where the Pro Football Hall of Fame was. But this doesn't involve Canton. This is just a Cleveland play this time with the Browns. Well, we're the host, and Canton was trying to get it for its 100th anniversary, which that window will have passed because that happens uh, next year. Um, I, you know, I think on the, the numbers side, it's worth pointing out again, there is a, a fairly substantial upfront money uh, or cost that we're going to be paying through tax dollars and other things. So the $100 million plus, and, and this is good, right? We're not, we're not building a new stadium for it, 
But they're, you know, I'm, I'm always dubious of, of, of those numbers, and I'll have to take a closer look as we get closer what we're putting in up front. Yeah, and hopefully we'll get some information as time goes on about. I mean, there's the security cost from. issue, insurance. There's all kinds of things that are going to start coming up. Um, but you know, it is a it's a one and done, uh, and then we'll move on to the next All Star game or whatever else we're chasing. Well, with all those people hanging out downtown, we can expect there'll be a big cleanup at the end, and in that cleanup, we'll see a lot of plastic bags. Jane, this week a new move was to, was made to block places like Cuyahoga County from banning the use of plastic bags that are wrecking our waterways, let alone trashing our vistas. As we know, Cuyahoga County Council has been working on such a ban for quite some time. What's happening in Columbus that could thwart that? Well, two Republican lawmakers from Southwest Ohio have uh, reintroduced a measure that passed the House in last year's lame duck, but they didn't have time to uh, get it through the Senate. Um, And it would essentially preempt uh, uh, Cuyahoga County and other local governments from passing these bans. Um, these two guys say it's all about being business friendly. We need uniformity, um, etc. But you know what strikes me about this, and it's just struck us repeatedly over the years, is is somebody in Cleveland, Greater Cleveland, tries to do something, whether it's guns or or police residency rules and now plastic bags, which a lot of people could argue is a smart thing because we're wrecking the water with plastic. And two guys who have nothing to do with us, we didn't elect them, there's no accountability to Ohio, rise up to, to thwart it. And this happens time and time again. Anytime business or somebody doesn't like the legislative intent of our local elected leaders, they can find people from distant places who have no, no stock here to, to get in our way and stop us. How, how right. is that democracy? Uh, might I point out also that there are, uh, I believe, nine uh, Republican co-sponsors, none from Northeast Ohio. Right. We're not governing ourselves. Mark, what were you going to say? Well, I mean, you got the Ohio Beverage Association and the, the Chamber of Commerce, which usually gets you know, behind these kind of legislative pushes those are very powerful lobbyists um and that is you know they're the ones who make the push the message that hey you're going to hurt business and that's an easy sell uh to to republicans on on this point you know the plastic bag ban you know you got to separate it from what, what what this does this is this is about an issue of who has the right to govern the plastic bag ban, the more uh, it, that we hear and learn about it, I still think is, uh, is, is badly done. The, the, what we're finding is that the incentives for reusing bags is really the, the best option uh, because the plastic bags get reused. Uh, paper bags cost more uh, carbon footprint to create, but that is separate from what yeah, this battle is. But, that, but that's not the, the – the issue is yet again – and look, we've heard this from – legislators from city council from mayor frank jackson that every time you try to do something that is a little bit different to determine your fate you get blocked because of people who ha- you don't elect and you and you can't do anything about it gets back to something we'll be talking about shortly involving gerrymandering because the representation is lopsided but you know we But fl- to bring it to your point and, and this is where I was headed is even if we had changed that law to be a bit more uh, practical from what we're seeing, and maybe it is is the fee, which we didn't want to do locally, I still think we'd get this pushback. Right, you know, no, matter what, what no matter what. They're going to say no. 
Uh, we saw it on minimum wage issues, although that ironically was something that our own local folks were, were pushing for. And that was that legislative bill to see if we can just have a, a statewide, uh, or I mean, to block the ability to put in uh, an increase in the minimum wage, obviously with guns. And, and now we can add plastic bags to this list. I don't know. A few years ago, we had some fun just imagining what uh, a state of, of North Northern Ohio, we called it Western Reserve, might look like. And, you know, it was lots of fun. And where would you get your college from and things like that. But but man, more and more, it seems like if we want to determine our fate, we have to do something radical to take control because otherwise nothing people try to do in urban cores and, and the needs of urban cores are so much different will stick because the rural people will stop it. Mary. So are you proposing secession, Chris? <laughs> well, I think we need a discussion on how we can control our fate because we're clearly not doing so. Does anybody feel like we have control? Uh, well, I was just going to say, I think the only thing we like about this is when, when they move to restrict the traffic cameras. We, we like that part. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The other big news from Columbus this week is the final report on the late Ohio State University doctor who has been accused of sexually abusing people. Eric, give us the key points of that report. We're talking about a report that was put together by a, um, a law firm from Seattle that Ohio State had hired uh, when accusations against this doctor, Richard Strauss, had started coming out. Uh, they were kind of piecemeal, and these people, you know, hearing them, it was very credible. This report mirrored a lot of what those people were saying, but also took it to another level. Um, How many people are we talking? At least 177. So how does that happen? Does the report get into how that can happen with nobody being aware? Well, that that's the thing. There are plenty of people who were aware. Uh, if you read the report, uh, the question really isn't were they aware about what they did with it. Um, this guy was hired in 1978. He, uh, Dr. Strauss, came from other states. He ended up working, I believe it was 1979. Between 1979 and 1981, he started working with uh, the athletics department, um, and that's really where that culture of, you know, um, the culture of not saying anything kind of festered, uh, between then and about 1996 when he was removed. Um, there was evidence from a lot of the interviews they did. And these people did more than 500 interviews with people who were around at the time. Wow. And they said, you know, this was kind of a, a known thing. The, some of the ath- athletes considered it hazing. Um, but when concerns were brought up to coaches and administrators, there really wasn't a lot significantly done. Jane, uh, Representative Jim Jordan immediately came out and said this cleared him. Why did he think he needed to be cleared? Well, he worked as an assistant coach during the time that Strauss was abusing athletes. And some of the athletes have said he was aware of this. It was an open secret and he didn't do anything about it. He vehemently denies that. This report. um, Does it clear him? It it does not name him, as far as I know, uh, and it says they couldn't um, find the documentary evidence to, you know, say one way or the other uh, what kind of knowledge the coaches had. So he's one of the people you're talking about, Eric, that some people have said was in the thick of it, was aware of it, but this report makes no determination as to whether he did know or did not do anything that's right. I mean, the, this report actually does not name anybody, uh, coaches and below. Uh, administrators are named by name, some of them, not all of them. Um, and so, you know, yes, there is evidence where it says coaches knew. Does it say Coach Jim Jordan knew? No, it does not. Um, but certainly there have been interviews by victims 
who came forward long before this report came out, and I think some of them were even before the uh, Perkins Coie started investigating, that said, yes, Jim Jordan, coach of the wrestling team in the 80s and 90s, knew about this, and uh, clearly evidence showed that it continued for years after that. Jane, one result of this mess is another look at Ohio's statute of limitations on rape prosecutions. What's new there? Uh, Governor Mike DeWine has proposed doing away with the statute of limitations for rape, which is 20 to 25 years, depending on the circumstances. Um, the, the victims sometimes, you know, uh, it takes them a long time to come forward. And he says if a monster like Strauss were alive, uh, you, you just can't. It's unthinkable that he couldn't be prosecuted. Well, and it's also something that we've dealt with in Cleveland with the untested rape kits where you remember as they were starting to do the DNA testing of those, they were up against like daily statute of limitations to try and get charges filed. Uh, right. And people raise questions there. Why Why are we working against this? Why can't this be forever, Mark? Yeah, and it's important to remember that, you know, we've had this debate and, and the idea of abolishing them um, hasn't always gotten support even from prosecutors, obviously public defenders and others, because you know, the memory issue. So they've tied this idea of abolishing the limitation to maybe DNA-specific cases, which then at least is giving you a scientific link to that that past. To me, that is a no-brainer and why we haven't moved to that. And I think that's kind of what we're going to see the push. Uh, what, one thing to note, I thought this was interesting. We were talking about this over the weekend. This report came out after OSU had dismissed uh, for the spring semester. So there were, were really no students on campus to get reaction from about this. So that's sort of an, an open question, too. Like, what are students thinking? How are they reacting to this? And you have to wonder, you know, was the, the release of this report, you know, was it strategic, the timing? Well, and, and the other thing we were talking about, I was in on that conversation with Mary as well, is we were kind of comparing this to Larry Nasser, uh, the doctor for the USA Gymnastics team who worked at Michigan State University. Now, he had, I believe it was accused of about uh, uh, basically abusing uh, 250 people. Uh, Dr. Richard Strauss, who died, killed himself in 2005, was 177 mostly male uh, students. We were kind of debating, you know, this has not gotten as much attention, I think, on the national stage as Larry Nasser did, in part, I think, because uh, Dr. Richard Strauss is dead. Um, but, you know, this the evidence shows that this went on for just as long. Or longer. Right. Eric, you reported on what appears to be the conclusion of another unusual story, this one out of Cleveland. It involves a bunch of people who were training to be Cleveland police officers but were kicked out of the class for cheating. Before we get to the newest development, how did they cheat? Um the um the administration basically said or the police administration pretty much said that they cheated by um there was a portion of their training in the academy where they are required to copy uh segments of policies and things verbatim um and so you know they're all supposed to be typing that verbatim exactly what's show shown on a slide um the problem was all these people had verbatim answers uh 15 of them in this case uh and but you know, the um, instructors started finding uh, grammatical errors that were in the same place as the other people. They were so, all repeated. Right. So they were, you know, copying. I think there was evidence that it was actually a flash drive. So they filed a lawsuit to get back into the academy. What was their claim? That they did not cheat? 
Well, they were at, at the time they were actually suing to try to take the test. These uh, fifteen uh, cadets ended up suing before they were fired. It was in August; they were not fired until September. So at the time, they were just trying. The academy had said, "No, you're not taking the test. You're going to fail, and you can't become a police officer." Uh, they said that uh, no, we should be able to take the test. Uh, you are depriving us our due process rights, and we should be able to do it. The judge uh, in August said, "No, that is not the case." So they proceeded from there. And during the litigation, they were fired as well. So what happened this week? Uh, a judge said, no, you don't have due process rights. And it's kind of a weird little segment of the law. Um, you know, once you uh, pass your probationary period, you know, for a lot of places, it's three months. It's a little longer for these police officers. Um, you are basically protected by civil service. Uh, what the judge was asked to determine was whether or not these people had the same protection as many civil service employees and sit in the city and he said no they are in their probationary period and so you guys don't have a claim to work on um the lawsuit's dismissed yeah and it's what's sad about it is is this was a class that would have added diversity to the police department as i understand it though the latest class that's about to graduate is about 50 percent minority so they should be increasing diversity there uh, jane one of the reporters you work with laura hancock put together a detailed look at what the ohio landscape might look like if the U.S. Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade on abortion. The piece had all sorts of facets. Let's start with the structural side first. Laura predicted that abortion foes would immediately put a constitutional ban on abortion on the Ohio ballot. Is there any indication on whether such a thing might pass? Well, uh, I just saw a national poll the other day, a Quinnipiac poll, that said uh, more Americans favor access to legal abortion uh, than those who oppose it. So I don't know the answer to that question. Ohio is, it's Ohio, it's different. Um, but uh, yeah, that would be if the Supreme Court leaves it up to states, they would move for a constitutional amendment. Uh, there are other scenarios possible. The court could do a wholesale reversal of Roe v. Wade, or it could... Uh, you right. know, decline to reverse it. Well, is there a possibility you'd see the opposite, that, that people who believe in, in the right to abortion would seek a constitutional amendment enshrining that? I haven't heard any talk about that, but that's very interesting. Um, perhaps they will. Be, she also looked at what would happen to women seeking abortions and predicted the picture would look very different based on income. How would that be? Because wealthy women will find a way to get an abortion, whether it's traveling to another state or finding somebody who will quietly provide it, uh, whereas poor women aren't going to have that kind of that, uh, those kinds of kinds of options. Uh, so, uh, also many might turn to try to induce their own abortions. Mary. The doctors that I've talked to about this um, can't say enough how dangerous um, that would be if women were in a position where they felt like they had to induce their own abortion. These are very, very dangerous situations that can put the woman at risk. I was talking about, uh, you know, what the climate was in the 1960s and was told by a, an attorney that Cincinnati, a hospital in Cincinnati had an entire ward um, dedicated to women who um, had botched abortions. Wow. Wow. That's frightening. What, what, you know, Ohio's a big state, so, and we're bordered by a bunch of states. What are the states on our borders that we think would offer the closest options to women in the various parts of Ohio? Pennsylvania seems likely. Uh, New York, although that's not technically on our border, but it's not, it's not far to get to the New York border. What about um, on the west maybe side? Maybe Michigan? I maybe don't know. Michigan. 
Well, I mean, even today, too, for women who don't live near an abortion clinic, which is most women in Ohio, I think there's like seven abortion clinics in the state, and most of them are in urban areas. Um, they have to visit the abortion clinic twice. You have to have an initial consult, and then you have to make another appointment for the actual abortion procedure. So even today, access to abortion for low-income women. I mean, you're talking about taking off several days off your job. If you live far away, you've got to find a way to get to a major city where you can get in to have an abortion. Um, so, you know, even if you look at the landscape today, it is tough for low-income women, you know, who don't live in urban areas to get an abortion in Ohio. Well, let me ask this. Um, you know, we're, we've dealt statewide and particularly in um, Cleveland with a high infant mortality rate. If the belief is that that women of lesser means will be more challenged in getting abortions uh, and we end up with a lot more uh, births largely in that population, what what will that do to Ohio's resources in dealing with all of these these children that we don't have now with all of these special needs? Well, uh, the right to life folks say that there are plenty of people waiting to adopt children, and these children could be placed. Um, they also say they're, you know, working to make sure the social services are there. Um, there are these crisis uh, pregnancy centers that are, you know. But hold on, hold on. I mean, how many abortions were there in Ohio last year? Was it twenty-eight thousand or something um, like that? It was a huge number. They're saying that there's 28,000 potentially adoptive parents for that? that? I, I think this is all open to, to debate. Uh, yeah. it's, it's not a decided. The other thing to note is not all women are having an abortion because they don't want to have a child. There are women out there who are having an abortion, you know, in the late stages of pregnancy because some sort of genetic anomaly or because the, you know, the pregnancy is dangerous to her. So, you know, just because you know, there were X number of, of abortions in Ohio in, in 2018. That doesn't mean that there would have been that same number of births. The other question is, um, would prosecutors in the urban areas where you have a, a greater percentage of people that favor abortion rights prosecute um, if doctors did this? And it's hard to know because, you know, I don't think they're going to campaign on this. Um, but but it's an interesting question, you know, across the country and in Ohio, uh, who would prosecute these cases? Very interesting. So, um, gerrymandering remains big news in Ohio. Jane, you edited a Rich Exner piece this week that involved a poll to have people <laughs> tell us which was the most gerrymandered congressional district in the state. What won, or maybe I should say lost? Well. Uh Right now, uh, Rich will report the, the results, but right now it's looking like uh, Marcy Captor's notorious Snake on the Lake District, which is a narrow band running uh, along Lake Erie from Cleveland all the way to Toledo, uh, and Jim Jordan, the aforementioned Jim Jordan's district, which is really a masterpiece uh, <laughs> of manipulation. It, it actually starts in... Northeast Ohio in Lorain County dips down into the Columbus suburbs and then goes west almost to Indiana. But you know what's surprising about that is the 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 city of Cincinnati is a Democratic city, but the way they divided that, they have two Republican right. people. And I'm surprised that people. I mean, as pure numbers go, that shouldn't be. But that one doesn't seem to be. I'm I am uh, surprised as well that that one was not chosen because. 
Hamilton County, I think, I mean, voted so overwhelmingly for uh, Hillary Clinton over Trump, and they just managed to find a way to neatly divide it and include some of those Republican areas uh, on both sides to make two safe seats. Now, that could be gone if the lawsuit uh, continues to be successful to redraw these districts for the 2020 elections. It will be gone by 2022 because of a, of a new formula. Um, this week, the gerrymandering news is Dave Yost once again filed more arguments in support of holding off the redrawing this year. And Secretary of State Frank LaRose announced that he has kind of a loose timetable for following the court orders. So what did LaRose say? Well, he said he hopes that they don't have to do this again until 2021, until after the 2020 census, because that's what the voters decided last year when they approved gerrymandering reform. Um, however, what, what that leaves out is that voters weren't given an opportunity to choose the timetable. The issue just yeah. said this, right. <laughs> this takes effect for the 2022 election. And reformers would argue that had they been given the choice to get rid of these bad districts now uh, for 2020, that they would have done that, so. Yeah, that, that's like a, one of those bogus arguments. <laughs> yeah, well, voters said they'd do it in 2022. It's like, well, you, you didn't really ask. Mary, did you have something you wanted to I was just going to say anecdotally, I lived uh, in Marcy Captor's district uh, on the very border. So I could see Marsha Fudge's district from my window um <laughs> the sarah palin tree. yeah the sarah palin thing um it was across the street at 117th and um you know there was there was no significant difference between uh, my apartment building and the apartment building across yeah. the street so yeah, clearly we live in a gerrymandered state what's not clear is how quickly we fix it we'll take a break and when we come back we'll talk with reporter Layla atasi about the evolution of the project we call a greater cleveland it's this week in the cle if you want to read what Ohio's decision makers read, subscribe to Capital Letter, your first read of the morning newsletter from Cleveland.com. It's packed with tightly written summaries of everything you need to be up to date on the state's political scene. Subscribe at Cleveland.com backslash newsletters. We're back on This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn here with Mark Namick. And in this segment, special projects editor Laura Johnston and reporters Emily Bamforth and Layla Tassi, who eagerly await the finish of this recording so they can, cl- can get closer to the holiday weekend. Welcome all. Thanks Hi. for having us. Hi. For more than a year and a half now, we've been bringing you a Greater Cleveland, a project exploring the barriers faced by children in poverty. Our goal in this project from the start was to spark people to give up their time to try and change the patterns of multi-generation poverty one little step at a time. Ultimately, we settled on promoting the model of Open Table, in which a group of six or seven people come together to mentor a single person in need, and hundreds of you have answered the call. Now, here to talk about where we're taking the project, we have Layla. Layla, you kicked it off this week. What is part two? Well, um, so... As we determined, uh, you know, we, we spent about a year and a half, as most of our listeners are, are, might be aware, uh, sp- spending time with families in Cleveland. Uh, we followed eight eight families, um, you know, embedded people, embedded our reporting team with the Boys and Girls Club, got to know the children, got to know their families, and reported at length about the challenges they face on a, on a daily basis. And through that, we really learned that relationship 
is the key to addressing many of the challenges they face, helping people kind of find that path from from poverty to prosperity. And also we learned that the relationships we forge with the families that we got to know um, were transformative for us. You know, that, that um, you know, I can honestly say that I am a different person today than I was two years ago when we embarked upon this, three years ago, perhaps. Um, so what we, we discovered this program called Open Table, which is a national model that nonprofits can become licensed to execute on a local level to any population that, that the nonprofit serves. Um, one very, uh, well established one in the Cleveland area deals with children who are aging out of the foster care system. And then we kind of embraced that and we wrote a lot about Open Table and we hosted in our own, uh, facility here a, um, you know, an open call for people who are interested to come and hear what Open Table is all about. Right. 500 plus people signed up. We yes. had more than 300 people here. It was, it was astonishing to see that many people interested in, in engaging with families and people on that level. And from there, Metro Health decided that they wanted in on this, that Open Table aligned so closely with their mission as the safety net hospital for the region. They wanted to uh, become licensed to run Open Table for themselves. And um, they did it. And back in August, I decided that I would love to uh, be a part of the, op- the Open Table process at Metro. I asked them if it would be okay if I signed up. I wanted to see that journey for myself and uh, write about it for listeners who have come all this way with us on uh, a Greater Cleveland. So, so you went through the training, and it took a, it took a little bit of time for you to get a table. But you started meeting when in December, January. Yeah, we we met our uh, our family member, as Open Table refers to it, our sister. Um, her, we call her Alondra Rivera in our series uh, in December, right around Christmas time. And uh, my table is made up of five women. The other members of the table are all Metro Health employees, but that's not a requirement of being a part of Metro's open table program. No, actually, Akram Boutros, the CEO there, is really hoping to get a lot of people from the public involved in this. Yes, and that's really what we're hoping, too, is that by chronicling this journey that our table takes together with Alondra, that we can uh, encourage as many people as possible to see that this can fit in with their own life and that they can they can do great things in their community. So just like the reporting on the families in the segment, the first segment, we should mention Mark was a big part of that too, mm-hmm. and followed families. This has been challenging for you. This has not been easy. You've gone no. through a lot of trials and tribulations. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Through the, op- the open table process? Yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, like any family, <laughs> our table, like, you know, and we had been told you're going to have this honeymoon phase. And it's true. We did. I fell in love with this group of women. I mean, they're so, you know, they have these di- diverse interests and talents and some are spiritual and some are very pragmatic. And this, you know, we came together in this blend. I mean, there was this one day when I was like, I just love you guys, you know, just we were all just love fest for the first couple months. But we had some challenges along the way, and you'll read about those things. And uh, we had very different opinions about how to best counsel Alondra, who is an 18-year-old recent graduate um, of high school. Uh, she went to CMSD schools. And uh, it was just sort of kind of rudderless in life and didn't really have a uh, strong mentor in her life until now, didn't have many friends. 
and, um, you know, was living in the Lakeview Terrace public housing complex with her mother and sister in a really crowded unit. Her mother didn't speak English very well. And so she was just really kind of a lost soul out there. And we had a really hard time uh, with, you know, many of the challenges she faced. We had just strong opinions of how to help her find the find the way. All right. So the so the first two parts of this published this week and, and you introduce it and you've got a lot of pieces already put together to take us through this story. What I'd be interested in hearing is, you know, I we talked a lot during phase one. You faced mm-hmm. a lot of very difficult moments in the first phase as you confronted the obstacles that a that a hardworking, caring mother faced because of poverty. I mean, it really upended uh, a lot of the thoughts people have about poverty. Th- it's been a. Li- this is a little different in what you're facing, right? I mean, in the, in the first case, it was it was straight mom, bunch of kids living in horrible conditions, trying to make a go of it. Um, you alone, basically, you and Mark. Now you've got this team of people mm-hmm. all working on one person. So how how is it different? And, and and even in your emotional challenges to yourself, is this easier? Well. The difference really lies in the fact that in the last phase, I was an observer. And of course, a friendship developed from that relationship between reporter and subject. But I am constantly aware of my new role in this person's life, Alondra. And I spend a lot of time with her. And it's it's really, um, I mean, spoiler alert, she goes through a housing crisis. And you know, there are a couple nights when she was kind of tossed out on the cold and one of our table members took her in. And this sparked a immediate response from right. the table. Let me stop you right there. Because anybody <laughs> that's thinking of doing this, that's not normal. That's not you typical. You don't have to take your table It's not typical. In. Yes, of course. It's not typical. And in fact, you know, the experienced, uh, you know, administrators of these programs have told us that they have never had that happen before. <laughs> but it is an interesting, dramatic point for a storyteller. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, so I ended up taking, you know, after we resolved that housing crisis and Alondra ended up back in her home with her mother and they smoothed over all their issues I ended up taking her to um, a place for me, which is a nonprofit house at the YWCA, to help her kind of learn what resources are available for housing instability for someone in her situation. And I just was so aware the entire time that I was taking notes that I wasn't there writing a story. I was there trying to help my friend. That's very cool. Layla, if you could talk a bit about seeing the issue of poverty now from a very different generation. You are now dealing with a a young woman who's 18 versus the corporate family where you, uh, you know, still continue to stay in touch with and write about, but was already uh, had, you know, children up up to the age of uh, 12 at the time you started. Um, And you're seeing this now at this perspective, has that changed how you've, been uh, looking and addressing poverty and I guess any observation you can make on that? I think with uh, Contessa Corper, um, you know, she, as you mentioned, she is a mother of four children and so many of her, the challenges that she faced involved finding the right school for her children, getting them the right health care, finding uniforms for school, feeding them, uh, making sure that her money can stretch. She, you know, obviously was single parenting, um, and the fathers of her children were nowhere, nowhere in the picture. And um, the difference, of course, with Alondra is that she is so fresh in the world. And um, she has 
all of these competing dreams and helping her try to hash through them and do the soul searching that it takes to figure out what path uh, is best for her is joyful and also frustrating. Um, but it is completely different from, you know, the mother of four who is trying to help her children do that. And, 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 you know, as a friend to Contessa, being the support system to help her support her children and here being the support system for someone who's just sort of like, you know, newly released into adulthood. We can do a whole podcast on this and we're going to have to move on. But Emily, you had one question. Um, in these open table situations, often part of it is the, the sister or the family member has, um, has to open up. There's definitely trust that needs to be built in these people are coming from situations where they haven't had an opportunity to fully trust someone in a while. Um, could you talk a little bit about building that trust? That's a great question. Because recently I was talking to a table member who was lamenting to me that she thought we would be closer with Alondra than we are. And I actually feel like we're exactly where I expected to be because I was aware of how hard it is to gain the trust of people when you just parachute into, into their lives like that. And for Alondra, I mean, she is one of those, Mark had the, had the opportunity to meet her when he came to take some pictures of her. She is so, um, just warm and sweet and, uh, kind of naive about the world and open. She was ready for this experience in a way that kind of took us by surprise. She had really, begged to be a part of it because she took the readiness test, which I think is some sort of psychological, um, you know, it tells, you know, whether or not you are mentally prepared for what lies ahead. And I'm not quite sure she, she passed over the threshold, but we knew that she was ready based on, you know, how she had done so much research about open table. And she was like, bring it to me. I, I need these sisters in my life. And, and she has, you know, always remained uh, committed to it. So, all right, we um, we'll we'll try and catch up with you again the July Fourth week on how <laughs> this is going. Uh, Got to move on. One of the most read stories on our site this week is one that a local local blogger wrote. It's about one of Cleveland's signature employers and the possibility of it building an iconic world headquarters, but possibly not in Cleveland. Emily, first tell us who broke the story, give them credit, and then tell us what the highlights are. Of course. It's uh, local blogger Ken Pendergrast, um, who runs the NEO Trans blog. He writes about transportation issues, economic development issues. He's been a reporter in the community for quite some time now. And this isn't the first time he's written about this. He's written about rumors that have circulated. Cranes Cleveland wrote a story about this Um not specifically about this, but about new skyscrapers being built in Cleveland in 2016 and mentioned this. They were considering it back then. But Sherwin-Williams has been through a bit of a transformation since 2016. They acquired uh, Valspar, which was a giant coatings company. They sold off part of it to make sure that that acquisition would be approved. But they acquired um, many employees and became one of the largest coatings companies, painting coatings companies in the world. So they need space. They need space. And uh, we're not exactly privy to how they're planning on moving their employees around. They do have multiple locations a across the globe. Um, but Cleveland is where they were incorporated. It's where their articles of incorporation stay, say that they need to stay right now. And if this company is going to continue expa to expand, they're going to need more space. Uh, Ken, in his story, 
uh, said that they've started filtering over into another building. Um, we were not able to confirm that with the company, but it, they might need space in a giant skyscraper might be the way they need to do it. Laura? So they are um, downtown, really close to the um, Rocket Mortgage Field, field House, where that um, big banner is. It used to be LeBron. Now it's a transportation uh, banner. And they also have uh, what they call the Country Club Campus right on the river. So I think our commenters this week on Cleveland.com had a lot of fun thinking, where could they put a big <laughs> office building? They're like, oh, remember they were supposed to build a new casino. They could put it there. And so I think people are, are having fun thinking, but they want it downtown and that hopefully is going to be what happens, but it's not a given. Here's the thing, though. We have a big effort going on in Cleveland right now to deal with lead paint. And one of the pushes Mm -hmm. is to raise the considerable millions of dollars it will take to do that. Mm -hmm. And even though the law is now pretty clear that the paint companies can't be held legally responsible, I think a lot of people are expecting to use some moral imperative push to get Sherwin-Williams and other coatings makers to come forward. But if Sharon Williams is is having a, a bit of a contest to see who offers them a great deal, a la Amazon, can Cleveland, Greater Cleveland, try and guilt them into providing millions of dollars at the same time to clean up lead? Or is the timing of this somewhat kind of suspicious? Is maybe maybe they're thinking, you know, Cleveland won't ask us for this money. If Cleveland were to ask them for five, six million dollars to clean up lead, every city in America would start asking for that. And I just wonder how the dynamics of that could play out. Anybody have thoughts? Well, I think we have to look at history, and that says that companies are no longer loyal to their hometowns. I mean, they're going to go where the dollars are. Uh, and I think what we saw with the Amazon uh, bid that the state has the ability to put together pretty significant packages, but so does Minneapolis and other other places. This would be a, a big win for a city, given its you know. Prominence, it's in the number of employees. The income taxes that the city gets from it, it's a huge amount of money. Yeah, and you look at, you know, it's not like their board is filled with uh, Clevelanders. They're, you know, they will always do what's in the best interest of the shareholder. And that may mean, uh, as we've seen with places like Eaton Corp, which moved right out of the city, they want, you know, better parking, be easier access, and newer space that they can design to their needs. We don't know what those are yet. Sherwin Williams isn't saying a whole lot. Uh, nor is the city of Cleveland, and they've not traditionally said much about how they've tried to woo, keep, or communications with companies. Emily, what you found is the articles say that it must be in Cleveland, but the board of directors can change the articles of incorporation. Yes, and it's not clear how much of a vote is necessary for that, and it, it it's not completely addressed in the articles of incorporation. It does say this is where the company will reside and where it will primarily do business um, and that they can amend it. But honestly, that's all it says. Um, and I have a feeling that if they want to move it, they will. They've already figured that out. They know what they out. need to do if they're going to move. It's irrelevant. They're going to go where wherever the best, the best deal is. The blogger suggested that the suburbs were even in play here. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of anti-poaching agreements through the Cleveland Water Department's uh, you know, waterline uh, maintenance agreements. And I think three quarters of suburbs have signed those kinds of things. So there would at least be a revenue sharing right. kind of deal. Right. Um, so it's not simple for Sherwin-Williams to just up and go to the suburbs. And I, those, I mean, can't, th- those suburbs can't offer incentives to bring them they, they if could, they've signed those agreements, right? They I think, can't. I think they could offer 
I, you know, I don't know. But if they, but I think the first part of what you said is true. That if they do leave, they share the revenue. But you know, of course, there's a lot of economic development conversations going on now, mm-hmm. and and some of those involve thinking more regionally and sharing the wealth anyway, because you're not going to provide lift without it. So, uh, good points all. Laura, you published a piece this week that seems like it was right out of the Wild West with bounty hunters <laughs> shooting a wanted felon in the middle of a neighborhood. What happened? This was just uh, early, early Sunday morning in Bedford, and um, a guy was charged in Cuyahoga County Court with um, a bunch of drug possession charges um, and apparently hadn't been showing up for court, so the bail bond agents came after him. Um he jumped out of a second story window, landed on an agent, and got shot by another agent. Twice, right? Yeah. And he was not, they expected him to fully recover. Um, Bedford police did come, um, but it was, it was like this press release that you're like, wait, what happened? Well, remember, these are not trained police officers. These no. are guys hired by bond agents. And you can't help but wonder what might have happened if the county was moving more quickly to reform its justice system to get rid of bail. Uh, if you don't have a bail system, you don't have bail bond agents running around neighborhoods with guns drawn. It's just a frightening prospect. It is. And it's not one that you think about all that often. Um, but yeah, uh, you can pay a bail bond agent about 10% um, of what you would have to pay the court. And they provide a surety bond. And then they are the ones that are supposedly responsible for getting you to court. We did a big series about three years ago. And there's a lot of reasons why bail seems to not be a good idea. But the bail agents are really intent on keeping their industry because it's an industry that makes money. All right. Last week, you uh, you talked about all the dangerous things people are doing while enjoying recreation on the Cuyahoga County or the Cuyahoga River. Uh, and the image of that was mm-hmm. two guys paddling an enormous inflated flamingo down the river. Yes. And this week, you heard from one of them. I did. He actually got into contact with us over the weekend. And he's like, that's me on the flamingo. And we're like, okay, let's talk to you. So this is like a 10-foot high, 10-foot wide flamingo that seats six people. Um, his, uh, he, his name is Shane. He reached out. He and two friends... Uh, they all met through the Air Force, came together on July 4th last year. They got an alternative watercraft permit for their inflatable flamingo, and they paddled it all the way from the east bank of the flats to Edgewater. They had life jackets aboard. They had whistles. They were stopped by the Coast Guard, right? They were stopped by Coast Guard and Cleveland police, and both of them checked out their life jackets, checked out their... Um, I don't believe you actually need the alternative watercraft registration, but check that out. And um, Shane had checked the um, app, the marine traffic app, to make sure there were no freighters that he would have to worry about. So while the, the good time did take the picture of them, there were no freighters involved at the time. Um, and they they wore flamingo Hawaiian shirts and had captain's hats and were quite a spectacle. <laughs> a lot of boaters were talking last week yes. about that. I guess it's not just on the Cuyahoga. It's on Rocky River. It's not barges there, but it's still big boats. And mm-hmm. uh, this clash of the recreational paddleboarder kayaker with the boats is becoming more and more and of an you, issue. You don't need much to go on the river. Like we talked last week about people literally swimming in the river. Like, so anyone could go just Blah. jump in, right? <laughs> so, well, you, you were paddleboarding down our river last weekend. I was. You? I was in the Rocky River and I had my leash on and I had my life jacket on. So always wear your life jacket. If you're on a paddleboard, get a leash. But um, it's just because everybody wants to go and there's no like guards keeping you out going, did you, did you, you know, check out the safety rules for this river yet? So if you're going to go, be safe about it. Oh, right. oh, Laura, I have one question. Yes. Uh, I'm sure this is on everyone's mind. Are we going to see a 
Pink Flamingo Festival on the river. <laughs> you know what? Some commenter made that point. He said, if Cleveland were smart, they would they would have a pink, pink flamingo. You could also get these in unicorns and uh, peacocks and swans. How much? Uh, $250 on Yay. Amazon. Um, we have a link on our <laughs> site. It's cheaper than pay. a stand-up paddleboard. Cheaper than a That's jet ski. True. Yeah. But um, actually, on uh, June 22nd is the 50th anniversary of the Ki- of the Kyger River Fire. Uh, so it's a big day of celebration in Cleveland. And there's supposed to be what's going to be called the Cleveland Float. Uh, I'm hearing it's about 1 p.m. There's not much out about it. But the idea is they want everybody floating on the river at one time. There's not going to be freight or traffic. So bring your pink flamingo or your <laughs> kayak or your raft and come down and float on the Cuyahoga. All right. We also have a tragic follow-up to the discussion we had last week about the Cleveland Marathon with the death of a 22-year-old Medina County woman just shy of the finish line. She ran most of the race. It sounds like it'll be weeks before we know what the actual cause of death is. But Emily, you did some research. First, you found out that it's not all that rare for somebody to die running a marathon. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, what what can people do before they run a marathon to make sure they're not vulnerable to the kind of thing that might kill them? It's incredibly tragic what happened. This is a very fit young woman um, who played collegiate soccer. So she recently graduated um, and it was quite a shock for everyone to have this big community event. It was sunny. People were celebrating and then to find out that this happened. But this is not uncommon. I talked with Dr. Timothy Miller at the Ohio University Wexner Medical Center, and he said that this is a lot more common than you might think. Um, so what do I do to not drop dead if I want to run a marathon? <laughs> so you look at your family history. And you look at some of the symptoms that you may have been feeling while you're training, um, and you go to your doctor for a sports physical or a general physical. Um, They will be able to ask the questions that might be able to get you into the testing room. There are a couple things that you can test for um, if you have an irregular heartbeat or um, may have a hidden condition that leads to an irregular heartbeat. They can run um, an EKG or a stress test, which basically measures your heartbeat. Um, and the electrical pulses there. And then you can also get an echocardiogram, which can detect um, hypotrophic um, cardiomyopathy, which is a leading cause of these deaths among young athletes. And basically, that is the enlargement of the walls of the heart that can lead to your heart having problems pumping. And that'll also, if you have clogged arteries, it'll help you see that as well if you're older? Yes. Basically, it's it's like, um, it's it's basically using radio waves to detect those kind of things, kind of a sonogram for your heart. Is that expensive? Yes. Um, and it really does depend on where you go and the situation and your insurance and your deductible, but it can range from a few hundred dollars to thousands of dollars, depending on the situation. So if you're really concerned, um, it's worth checking out with your doctor who will be able to provide that information or your insurance company. Um, but honestly, Miller said, don't let this detract from the health benefits of running. Um, don't let this prevent you from maybe going in and, and even looking at competing in one of these sports, but definitely be safe. Definitely go to your physician and train accordingly or, or work up or don't attempt it if you think that 
there may be family history or a condition that might. All right. So Mark will be out on his mountain bike this weekend. Should he be running to the clinic to get an EKG first? Uh, how's your family history? (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll be back in a moment to talk about a breach of security at Cleveland Hopkins International Airport. This is This Week in the CLE. If you're enjoying our This Week in the CLE podcast, you'll want to subscribe to Cleveland.com's free morning newsletter, The Wake Up. It's waiting for you in your email when you arise each morning to bring you news from overnight in the previous day. If you read The Wake Up each morning, you're up to date. Subscribe at cleveland.com slash newsletters. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn with Mark Namick. And in this segment, Cleveland City Hall reporter Bob Higgs and Justice Center reporter Corey Schaefer, who we've stolen away from their beats to talk about some of the big doings that they've covered this week. Welcome, Bob and Corey. Glad to be here. Good to be here. Bob, let's start with you. Months Months ago, we learned about the guy who drove his car through the security fence around Cleveland Hopkins Airport. But we had so many questions that went unanswered because City Hall was staying so quiet. This week, you got hold of the records that provided the answers. Let's start with the breach. What happened and when? It happened February 3rd, and it was in the middle, well, early, early morning, uh, about 2.50 in the morning. And this guy crashed through a gate on the west side of the airport, ended up driving all the way across the airfield, crashed under the fence on the east side over by where the IX Center is now, and beached his car in a snowbank. And what was the disturbing information you found in the records you got through your records request? It was a good three hours before the airport determined that somebody had driven across the airport uh, airfield. Uh, they didn't know it had happened until after his car was found outside the airport on the southeast end, and then they had to start backing up to figure out what it what had occurred. And we did not know that before these records. The city had, had not not explained any of that? The city had not explained that clearly. We suspected that. Uh, we had alluded to that as a possibility. But what these records showed very clearly is that they they had to work backwards. They talk in these emails that we got about how they had to start going and looking at videotape until they found where he crashed through this gate and knocked it down. And Is there any discipline that's resulting from this? Uh, TSA got interested in it. Um, they came in and they did some, some recommendations to the airport. They won't talk about what those are specifically because of security, but essentially it's just to beef up the perimeter security a little bit. They had one of the things the airport was disturbed about, and you can see this in their emails, is that it, several employees had come to work and walked past this gate that was missing without calling it in. Wow. Uh, and... So they put them through some counseling. They didn't discipline them, but they gave them, they gave them, uh, counseling on here's the things you have to do when you see the gates missing on the perimeter fence. I'm sure it could be pretty simple. Open gate bad. Yes, exactly. Good. Right. exactly. But it, they started showing up to work at five o'clock. The gate went down at two fifty and it was five fifty before the airport knew for sure it was gone and called TSA. So. All right. We also took heed of a study out of Philadelphia this week that has possible ramifications for Cleveland. The study examined what happened after Philadelphia put a tax on sugary drinks like sodas. What did it show? Consumption of soda in Philly went down 38%. Now, some of that might have been 
people going across the city lines to buy their sugary drinks elsewhere. But overall, they still believed consumption dropped substantially. Right. The, the sales itself in Philly went down like 50%, and they factored in what sales and zip codes outside the city were. And they, they figured somewhere around 38% is what the actual change was. So, Mark, you lived in Philly for a while. You know how similar it is. Uh, to Cleveland and yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a dirty city, but people are born and raised there. They love it and they see it. Um, but they have the same kind of obesity issues we e- have. Yeah, but I think it's important to remember that this was driven by the idea that this would be an economic gain for the city. That that money could then be put into education and other things. They really weren't. This this argument didn't come down to the health as much as it was. This is economics. But but let's talk about the health. I mean, with the similarities, if you could cut Cleveland's consumption of sugary drinks by by a third or 30 percent you can't argue wouldn't improve the health here but nobody's talking about that i mean kevin conwell has mentioned it and a few years ago we think joe simperman talked about it when he was a councilman it's why aren't we absolutely should be talked about the health and and we have groups and organizations outside the city took looking at the disparities in uh, in health outcomes obviously diabetes and Obesity are, are generally, uh, you know, harder to combat in, in, in poor areas, but it will take, uh, and this is what happened in Philadelphia, the, the, the leadership of someone either chasing the mayor's office or sitting in the mayor's office to push this through. And we're not, we're not hearing that from Cleveland City Hall. Yeah, it's just strange that it's not. I it's mean, a health issue for for them, uh, you know. And then the the, the benefit is the uh, is obviously the health, but the 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 greater economic coffers. Now we'll see in Philadelphia if people have tired of this argument because many right. people running for reelection next week are are running on a platform that we're going to do away with this this tax. Well, yeah, and people made it through the primary who were funded by the people supporting sugary yeah. drinks, so they could be thwarted. But as a health issue, uh, the Cleveland Health Department and mayor should could could take this on and lead it. It's not going to happen if a councilman uh, you know mentions it in a meeting. Corey, you covered what appears to be unprecedented in Cleveland, the capital murder case in which the defendant represented himself and he was sentenced to death. Um, the case is one of the more horrific crimes of recent years. Tell us a little bit about the crime itself. So the story that emerged at trial basically was that the defendant, whose name is Joseph McAlpin, and Joseph McAlpin's brother, Jerome Diggs, and a um, guy from the neighborhood that was kind of tangentially uh, acquainted with these guys, uh, Andrew Keener, Decided to go to the Mr. Carr's car lot on East 185th. Had been owned, family owned for 40 years. Uh, the owner now, Michael Kuznick, his, his father was the one who started it. And he took it over a few years ago. He and his wife, Trina Tamola, operated it. Uh, little, you know, neighborhood car lot. And the idea was to break in for the three guys to break in steal the titles, a couple, you know, keys to the, some of the cars, drive the cars off the lot, sell them, get some quick money, and that was it. When um, they all went there, Michael Kuznick and Trina were still in the dealership. They were closing up for the day, and they were there with their dog, Axel. And, uh, you know, testimony was that McAlpin went in, and uh, they were still there, fired at Michael Kuznick, as you know, the, the the bullet I think grazed his head, and Michael ran uh, toward the back room where Trina was, which is where the office was. And McAlpin caught up with with Michael, stood over top of him, and 
shot him in the head. And then shot her as she raced away. Went into the, yeah, when he went into the office, you know, when Trina heard the gunshot, it was a short time later that McAlpin went into the office. And as she was running toward the back door, he shot her in the back of the head and killed her. And he killed the dog, Killed the dog. Um, So. he, He took money. He took some, like, of the computer modem that controlled the business's surveillance video system so they wouldn't have that. Um, and they found his DNA on uh, Michael Kuznick's body, and they recovered the uh, a duffel bag, I believe, with the computer modem in it, and it, his DNA was on the computer modem as well. So him representing himself, I mean, there have been times where judges have insisted that even if somebody represents themselves, they have an attorney by their side to, to advise yeah. them. He had two standby lawyers there. But he pretty much did it all himself, right? He did. Um, yeah, I mean, the, when, when you, you know, they're basically the precedent is there's no hybrid representation. You can either represent yourself and do everything yourself, or you can have your lawyer do it for you. Judges don't like to intermix. How did so, he do? Um, I mean, I, forgetting, that, putting aside that he was convicted and he was sentenced to death, yeah. did he present a reasonable defense? He did. I think it was clear... Um, a couple things emerged that were pretty clear. One, I think his his attorneys coached him well. Two, he's a very intelligent guy. He's a very smart guy. Um, there were times when he was questioning some uh, witnesses, particularly the uh, the cell phone analysis uh, testimony. He hammered the guy over and over, and you know, got him to admit, you know, I. I I can put your cell phone there, but I can't put you there. I don't know who was controlling the cell phone, which is, you know, something basic for a defense attorney, but for someone representing himself to be able to, to pull out was pretty. But in the end, the jury didn't deliberate very long, right? Uh, no, they didn't. Uh, th- during the guilt phase. So I think during the guilt phase, he did much better than anyone would have anticipated. He would have, anyone representing himself would have done. Um, and, and there were times that I was like, you know, sitting there like this, this guy's surpassed my expectations for sure. Um, but, and they deliberated for, uh, a lot longer during the guilt phase than they did in the sentencing phase. They didn't have much to consider in the sentencing phase. And I, and I think once he got convicted, um, some of the dangers of representing yourself came out and the, he, he got defensive and, um, you know, there were times when he was just going, hammering the same point over and 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 it just got to the point where jurors were i think a little sick of it yeah, i can't imagine it's pleasant to sit through testimony about the suffering that went on there it's tough this is this week in the cle you've been reading the writers at cleveland.com for years and now you can engage with them on a more personal level through project text for a small monthly fee you can receive text messages from the likes of mary Kay cabot paul hoynes mark namick Troy Smith, and many others in our newsroom. Project Text gives you a cost-effective way to support the journalism upon which you rely. Check it out at cleveland.com slash projecttext. We're in the final segment of This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn, and I'm talking with the Cleveland's best team of reporters Yadi Rodriguez, Brenda Kane, along with their editor, Kristen Davis. They've just wrapped up weeks of terribly difficult duty, sampling the fare at the region's best Mexican restaurants in search of the one that is the best. Hola and welcome. Hola. Hola. So let's get straight to it. Who won and why? Yadi? Blue Habanero in Cleveland, a brand new, only six-month-old establishment. Uh, 
took home the crown. Why? Well, from the minute that you walk in, you can, you're welcome. You're made to feel at home. The food was outstanding. The service was phenomenal. The atmosphere was great. And the margaritas were on point. Were they the best you had? They truly were. They truly were. And everything, because we took everything into consideration. So we'll get to some of the other dishes and things you liked. But but talk a little about what goes into this. I mean, I get it. You know, it's really challenging, right? you got to go sample a whole bunch of Mexican. But it's a lot of work. I mean, you've got to go to a lot of places. You've got to taste a lot of food. And you're passing judgment on people that are investing a lot of themselves into making quality meals. So how do you go about it? What is your thought process? Well, one thing I'll say is Brenda and Yadi come up with a grading sheet that's about eight pages. Um, and uh, you see some of the pictures in the post, but they're, uh, we're circling grades, we're writing comments. Um, they go out and do a surprise visit to 20 restaurants around the area, Akron, Wadsworth, um, Menor, North Ridgeville, um, all around town, uh, and then go back for surprise visits. So it really, uh, it really does take up weeks. Do, do, when you're doing this, do you feel the weight of, of the judgments you're making? And how does that weigh on you? Um, we absolutely do because we understand that what we say could impact someone's business, either for the good or for the negative. So that carries a lot of weight. And um, we always try and look for the positive. Sometimes it's not there, but we still try and put a really good positive spin on it. All right, let's get to some of the specifics. First, what what would you recommend people have at the winning restaurant? Best dish? Truly anything on the menu. I'm not <laughs> I'm not going to lie. We sampled a lot of things. Um but there w- there was nothing that was bad and we went a second time and it was just as good as the first. Okay. So, what are some of the other restaurants that you highly recommend? Um, well, the first place we visited was a place in Wadsworth called Casa del Rio, and they really set the bar really high for everyone else that came after it. And they ended up finishing in second place, so wow. they didn't feel, fall very far off the mark. Um, the other places that we were at was Cozumel in Independence. Um, Uncle Tito's in Akron was really amazing, and uh, Nueve Acapulco, who... Um, has been closed for almost nine months or more, I think. Um, they, they came back with a real bang. All right. So, so as you go around and you're tasting all this food, uh, I'm sure that sometimes you have a conversation about something that just stays with you for, for the right reasons. What, what is a dish that, that just stood out from much of what you had as you went about? I, I think that the molcajete that we had um, at La Mesa in Mentor, which is a very small family-run place, was outstanding. And none of us had had it before, and it was amazing. And even afterwards, we talked about just how great it was. And I do also have to say, if you like true Mexican rice, it was one of the best and this guy his wife was still in mexico when he started and she was telling him over the phone how to cook it and so five years later when she came she told me that his rice is better than hers (laughs) um did you have the same feeling about a drink um is, is there was there one concoction that you had that you thought you know that's one that i'll want to go back and have again 
There were quite a few of those. <laughs> um, I'm not gonna. I, I'll tell you that that we experience a lot more freshness, not just your typical out of the machine um, margaritas. So, uh, Brenda, if you wanna, yeah, that was one of the most impressive parts was seeing the creativity that these bartenders have and how they're trying to use fresh fruits and fresh juice as opposed to a sour mix. Okay, this was a long process. You started this when? when April 20-ish. Yeah, it's, Eight it's, weeks. It's a long process. Uh, but, Kristen, we're going to be evolving Cleveland's Best a little bit now, um, doing a little bit more crowdsourcing through things like Yelp or, or TripAdvisor or what have you or, or our, our audience. Talk a little bit about where we're heading now with Cleveland's Best. Yeah, so we, we're going to do a combination. Um, Yadi and Brenda feel very passionate about including the reader still. Um, and so it's going to be weekly lists, um, things that um, with the Mexican restaurant, uh, by far the most read pieces are the winner, um, the best things we ate each week. Um, they're working on superlatives, best margaritas, um, best tacos, seven different categories. And so these are weekly. We'll have the big interest pieces um, that will go beyond food um, that we're kind of locked into food and drink because it's so popular, but this is going to allow us to do things like um, community pools, um, pets, uh, uh, businesses, best spa, that kind of thing. And um, each week there'll be a big list uh, sourced from various places, um, as well as uh, asking readers, many of them, for of the contest for their uh, nominations. All right, lastly, we've done a bunch of these over time. We, you know, whether it's uh, pizza or, or even looking at supermarket hot dogs, this is, we're, what, four days, three days after announcing the winner, and it's still riding high at the top of, of the list of things people are reading on our site. In your minds, where does this rank in terms of the contest we did in, 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 in enjoyment? Is this better than doing burgers? Is, was pizza better? Was this the most fun that you've had? I mean, how does this rank for all the contests that you've been involved in? Well, I wasn't around for burgers, so I can't comment on that. But this was one of the more fun ones, definitely. Um, just because we had the opportunity to really get to know the people involved, the the chefs came out to talk to us, the bartenders came out to talk to us. They really put forth their best selves. I think um, I kind of feel burgers was super fun for me. Um, you know, this obviously was a lot of fun. I got to speak a little Spanish along the way. Um, but it's great because we got to travel to places um, that people might not know about. You know, this little, you know, place out in Akron, there's nothing else around there. There are places, you know, there's something out there for everybody. These business owners are so proud of what they're doing. Um, and it's great to not just go to um, very popular places, but to get people to realize there's a lot of other local businesses out there where these people are pouring their hearts into what they're doing. All right. That's it for this edition of This Week in the CLE. Thanks to Yadi Rodriguez, Brenda Kane, Kristen Davis, Mark Namick, Mary Kilpatrick, Corey Schaefer, Bob Higgs, Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston, and Emily Bamforth. Check in every Thursday night or Friday morning for the latest episode. I'm Chris Quinn, and you've been listening to This Week in the CLE. <laughs>